Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 18th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fellowspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello, you got it right. You know, I, I was uh, this this thing. I'm trying to train myself to say hello rather than good morning because we don't always record in the morning. Mm-hmm. So, and people listen to this at all moments of the day. So exactly. <laughs> also with us is a very special guest. Doug Reside is with us. Doug has been the. Uh, Digital curator of the Billy Rose Theater Division of the New York Public Library since 2014. He joined the New York Public Library 2011 as the first digital curator for the performing arts before assuming his current position. Prior to joining the New York Public Library, he served on the uh, directorial staff of the Maryland Institute for Technology and Humanities in the University of Maryland. He has published and spoken on topics related to theater history, literature, and digital humanities and served large grant-funded pitches on these topics. This week, we had a great feature uh, uh, that featured Doug's work in the New York Times. So, Doug, thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Thanks for having me. So, tell us about this. uh, Tell our listeners who might not have seen the New York Times feature, what was the feature and and after you tell them about it, we're we'll t- going to talk about how this came about. Yeah, so uh, Jesse Green, who is the uh, critic at the New York Times, one of the critics at the New York Times, um, contacted me a, a couple of months ago about a uh, a project that he had seen um, that I'd been working on, where uh, I had taken some uh, photographs from our photograph collection and stitched them together to make little animations. So. Uh, particularly the photographers Friedman uh, Abels, the Friedman Abels studio, who shot all sorts of theater from about the about the 50s. They were really most active from the 50s through the, the 70s. They uh, shot on 35 millimeter film. Uh, so, it's, you know, of course, it's the same kind of uh, media that, that actual films are shot on, mm-hmm. but you would only have, you know, 24 to 36 or so shots per uh, roll of film at that time. 
but they would they would take a bunch of shots at once and so as a result you'd have a sequence that then when stitched together can make a little animated gif uh to uh, so you can actually see the the movement that was on the stage as well as uh, from uh stitching these stills together so uh for uh the article with jesse i'd stitched together a bunch of different photographs from the musical Cabaret. Um, I'd done uh, a lot of these for the Harold Prince exhibition that we opened in um, 2019. And there, there was an interactive as part of that exhibition that featured some of these photographs. But I, I did some more and then uh, had put together a kind of blog that had the, the photographs in show order, which you can actually see on the library's website as well now. Uh, so Jesse's piece looks at these photographs and uh, kind of talks about the the way in which they capture the moment um, on stage. The one I I think the first one I saw, which is maybe in in a way the most extraordinary of all, is the West Side Story. Mm. Uh, the animations of the location shots that that Leo Friedman did on West Fifty Sixth Street, etc. Uh, there's some in Central Park. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's it's just amazing uh, to me, uh, especially the uh, the sequence that includes the photo, uh, the iconic photo from the cast album of West Side Story, because, as you say, they um, they, they were shooting or he was shooting uh, very quickly. And so, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that I realized that they that they could do that many shots that quickly in those days but there there is a little it's almost like there is a little movie of <laughs> of carol lawrence and, and larry kurt running down that street and it and it and to see it in motion you know when you never thought you would and when you've been staring at that still photo for yeah. 65 years <laughs> it's it's kind of amazing yeah that those the west side story photographs came about um so i, I guess i should say you know we, we've uh, been digitizing material from our collection from the library at the library um for a couple of decades now uh, but of course in most cases we really have to be selective in what we in the photographs we pick because there's limited resources and um right. it uh, you know it's expensive to to digitize things so west side story the west side story stills which I, or animations which you write are the first ones that i did came about as a result of a collaboration with google cultural where they uh were putting mm -hmm. together a um a kind of online exhibition to celebrate um the anniversary of of west side story and as part of that uh, they funded the digitization of all the West Side Story photographs that we had from 1957. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was really one of the first times that we I was able to have enough photographs to to put these together. And then I I just wondered what would happen if if I did try to animate them and it was kind of you know it's one of those things where you you, you run it through the program and then the result sort of shocks you in a, almost like a you're about scientific <laughs> uh, you know discoveries of uh, you know scientific inventions or whatever that where something just pops up and then you realize it just sort of gives you chills whenever you first see it yeah and um uh the uh you mentioned that you've, you've been digitizing the photos but we should also mention for those of our listeners who don't know that you've been also uh the library has been uploading them to the website and i think my if my understanding is correct that you can uh you can basically access all of these photos for free yeah. uh, up to a certain resolution and then if, if you want larger than that then you have to pay a little bit is that correct that's right. Yeah. So yeah. the um, uh, since yeah, since the library began doing our digital collections, um, everything that we have up there is uh, free to view at I think it's seven hundred and twenty 
uh, pixels on the long side. Right, um, right. Yeah. And then, yeah, you can look at all those there. And there, there's almost 900,000 images from our collection, from the library's collections in general on that, that website right now. It's digital collection. What fascinated me more than anything else uh, was the scene from Cabaret that was dropped in Boston. Uh, the mm -hmm. first time I saw Cabaret in Boston, um, October 11th, 1966, a Tuesday night, um, that scene was in. Uh, oh, wow. with, the, with the sheet uh, and the, the silhouettes and the, the people behind and all mm -hmm. that. And it was it was a stirring scene. It was an, an amazing scene. Um, Sally and um, Cliff are going to the park uh, simply to uh, take a stroll. And they run into uh, people who are begging for money. A prostitute comes right up to Cliff and uh, propositions him right then and there, even though Sally's with him. Hitler is uh, giving a big speech, so on and so forth. I remember it vividly. And when I returned to Cabaret, and I remember it was October 28th of that month, uh, again, Schubert in Boston, um, that scene was gone, um, but it was in this, I, I understand why it was gone too, I mean it really, the show needed cutting for one thing, and it, there were enough powerful punches in the show without having that happen, especially with having an amputee in a wheelchair, who turned out not to be an amputee at all, but Joel Gray jumping out of the wheelchair at the end after he got money from them so <laughs> it was a tremendous scene but um, I, I have no problem understanding why it was dropped, but to see it again I had no idea that there was any type of um, photograph made of that. And it was also fascinating, too, of course, to see Jill Hoth, uh, both as a blonde and as a brunette, because when <laughs> the, first, the first time I saw her, indeed, she was a blonde, and the second time she was a brunette. So, uh, so really, the memories came back, and I thank you for those. Yeah, I, I love that the the shadow scenes as well. There, and there's actually, there's color uh, photography on the Sony Masterworks website, of that scene with, with them sitting on the bench. We have some of the black and white, uh, but it is interesting that you can you can kind of see the shadows in the background on, on those color photographs. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear, uh, Peter, it, it's really great to hear how that scene worked. Well, now the question becomes, did you have a native interest in theater or was this just something, a job you read about in the paper and applied and got <laughs> it? Uh... <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah, so I, um, I had a minor in theater and uh, my English uh, major and then PhD was really focused on theater all the way through my graduate studies. My dissertation was on um, creating electronic editions uh, of musical theater texts. And I, I looked in particular ah. at... Yeah, Jason Robert Brown's musical Parade. Um, this was back in 2005 or so. I, yeah, I think I actually finished the dissertation in 2006. Um, so, and then my, uh, I was hired from there at the, to the University of Maryland to work on all sorts of digital humanities projects. And then the, the library hired me initially as digital curator, and then I uh, became the theater curator generally in 2014. In fact, are you from Maryland? No, actually, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, so I spent a lot of time going to the St. Louis Muni and seeing the tours at the Fox Theater. Um, so it's really, it's a it, St. Louis is a very theatrical city. Um, I thoroughly uh, agree. Uh, yeah. Scott Miller's New Line Theater and oh, Stages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you go to Stages as well out in Kirkwood? Yeah, I did. Uh, I went to probably New Line more often than, well, yeah, uh, I mean, I went to all of them. Yeah, I uh, saw, there was a great production of uh, Jacques Brel, uh, is 11 Well Living in Paris at New Line that I still remember. It's, I think it's the best production of that show that I've ever seen. How nice. Yeah, no, there's a lot of talent out there. I agree entirely. So, Doug, uh, um, I, I don't, I don't get very often the chance to talk technology on this uh, on this broadcast, uh, but it seems like 
I might be able to talk tech with you, uh, especially since it seems like you did a panel a few weeks ago about the impact of technology on Broadway and how it uh, how it came to um, change over the years. Now, you finished your dissertation in 2006, and between 2006 and now, we've had a dramatic change in Broadway. Uh, uh, level of broadband to the homes. Mm. Could you imagine what the difference would be if we had the pandemic pre in, in 2006 when people didn't have broadband the way that we have it today? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about that a lot. I mean, even looking back at the, you know, there's been a lot of uh, retrospectives on the 1918 uh, pandemic and mm. how yeah. people dealt with uh, life at that point. But you're right. Back e- even, I wouldn't. I don't think say. I don't think you'd even have to go back to 2006. Uh, I started. I I teach a uh, musical theater history class at uh, Wagner College in Staten Island. Oh, and I've tried a couple of times to do it in a in various online ways because it, you know it's it's difficult. I, I live in Westchester, and so getting down to Staten Island has been um, you know is is a long commute. And so we've we've tried various kind of hybrid digital classes in the past there, and uh, even I don't know five years ago. Um, it was really difficult, even with Google Meet, uh, which is what I was in Google Classroom, mm-hmm. to do the same kinds of things that we're able to do with Zoom now. When you have multiple students trying to get online with different kinds of um, of connections, so no, you're you're absolutely right. This is the we were very fortunate that there was enough connectivity and kind of and enough people had broadband uh, to be able to do a lot of the things that we've done during the pandemic. So. Uh... Uh, tell us about some of your other projects that you've done over the years at New York Public Library that that uh you know you're you're sort of the uh, the man behind the curtain. Well, so I think some of the, the really interesting ones so there there've been a couple of exhibits the the Harold Prince exhibit uh which unfortunately had to close about 2 weeks early because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um was really fun. Uh, it was have, great. It was We've so, talked a lot about it. So yeah, excellent. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that was a that was that was one of my favorite things to work on. Um, we have a an upcoming. So the the theater division turns ninety this year. We were founded in nineteen thirty one during the depression. So uh, the, there was uh, the the producer David Velasco gave us a bunch of uh, photographs uh, or gave the library a bunch of photographs from the Mid Manhattan Picture Collection. And it was determined at that time that they started to have enough of a. Um, a kind of uh, critical mass of theater materials that they, that it needed to have its own division. And so uh, George Friedley, who was a relation of the famous producer, Vinton Friedley, uh, was the first curator. So anyway, so we're, this is our, our 90th anniversary and I'm putting together a virtual gala, which we're hoping to run in late May or early June. Um, that will be pay what you can. Anyone can join. Um, you don't have to, pay thousands of dollars or even tens of dollars. You can just join if you want to. And it should be a really fun uh, look at the um, at what we have in the division and also the history division. We've got some great talent lined up uh, to perform and to share their memories of the of the um, of working in the division. And also for the first time ever, we will be streaming about uh, 20 minutes or so of the theater on film and tape uh, collection. So uh, for those of you that don't know or are listening to this from far away, we have permission from the Broadway unions and guilds to go out and uh, film theater on Broadway and off Broadway and in regional theater. Um, but uh, part of that permission means that 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 material is very tightly restricted. It can only be seen in one room 
in right. the in the library. Um, but uh, because of the nature of the pandemic and our 90th anniversary, we have permission to show at least a small portion of it um, as, as part of this gala. So I, I think it'll be really a fun fun experience. I have never researched this, uh, but. Uh, which I guess would have been relatively easy to do, but now I can just ask you directly. Uh, <laughs> the the name of Billy Rose is attached to the collection. Uh, can you tell us how that came about? Yeah, that came about in the 70s. Uh, the Billy Rose estate uh, gave the division a, um, a significant endowment and uh, that they named the division with that. Uh, you, Probably, you know, many of your listeners will probably remember in the 70s, it was a very tar- dark time for New York economically, mm. and particularly for the um, the city institutions. There was an article about uh, Vartan Gregorian, who, who just passed away, and his sort of uh, work to revive uh, the New York Public Library after its very dark days in the in the 70s. And so at that point, I think the um, Billy Rose's donation and well, his family's donation really helped to keep the theater division alive. Wow. Wow. So what do people um, most um, seek when they come to uh, the Billy Rose collection? Have you noticed that um, there are certain things that, you know, like, for example, you always hear about um, at the Paley Center, people are always watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Is there something <laughs> like that in your world? Yeah, I would say that the thing that's used the most frequently are um, the uh, collections of uh, newspaper articles and uh, programs. So we have oh, um, thousands of maybe even millions of folders of uh, press clippings from um, just about every show and personality and even TV and movies uh, that have been in some way related to the theater community in New York. And so those those files are used um, every day whenever we're open. Uh, the as far as video goes, um, it feels like the uh, the revival, the Lincoln Center revival of Carousel gets watched a lot. Mm. Um, I always see people watching Patty Lapone and Gypsy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a, there there are titles that sort of uh, uh, you know are notably uh, frequently used. Oh, so there there is there is a complete uh, Toft filming of the of the Lincoln Center Carousel. There is, yeah. Oh, I'm not sure I knew that. That's it's a really good. Yeah, I've actually, I've taught it before. I had the this my Wagner students come up to the library and we watched it together. It's a really great, great recording. Do you, you know, think it's because of Audra McDonald? What's that? <laughs> Audra and McDonald, in fact. Um, do you think that's the reason that people are more interested um, uh, in that pr- property than uh, others? Um, maybe. I, I yeah. think, it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's also the kind of the beginning of the re-examine of Rod, uh Reexamination of Rodgers and Hammerstein and kind of the British um, uh-huh. uh, revival. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, what, uh, in fact, would you never accept because you have too many of them already? <laughs> well, playbills, and we do get offers of those <laughs> about every day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, I, I myself, and in, you know, independently and personally collect my, you know, keep my playbills, but yeah. uh, but there's not. Yeah, we we have we have virtually everything. And if you have, you know, really really rare playbill from, you know, or program from the 19th century or the 18th century, we might, we might want to talk to you. But if it's a, if it's a 20th century New York playbill, we probably have it. No kidding. Even for things that, you know, closed in previews or uh, really? Very, very likely. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I mean, if it's super rare, um, maybe, but you know, those, those rare programs often get to us um, fairly quickly to you. People feel like the, you know, the library should have a copy of this and so, or, or we, we know that we need a copy of it. And we they, they, they must have an offsite, offsite storage. I mean, you know, you, you don't have it all there in Lincoln center, do you? 
No. Yeah, we have um, we have a, uh, a storage that we use as part of a, a consortium with um, a couple of the university libraries in the area that's uh, stored in the on the campus of Princeton University. Uh, called uh. You might hear it referred to as Recap, and then um, yeah, there's but yeah, so, so it's mostly all on site or or at at Princeton. Princeton, wow. my, come on, yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to be a, I actually used to be the digital archivist for Scholastic, the children's publishing company, and yeah. and we had uh, we were in the process of converting Scholastic's hundred years of books to digital, and everything was stored in Jefferson Jefferson City, Missouri, <laughs> um, in wow. a, in a <laughs> in a, uh, a facility ten times the size of Giant Stadium. So wow! Really? It was, yeah, it it was like ten times it was like, the size of Giant Stadium. Yeah, ten times the size of Giant Stadium. It, it, it looked like the the final scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, you ever you see it? it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you compare right. our storage to that too. It, yeah, it really it's a it's an apt uh, comparison, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I I'd be astonished <laughs> if it was ten times the size of Fenway Park. I mean, that's really something. <laughs> Good lord! Um, nevertheless, even though you have all these playbills and you're pretty much covered uh, and all that, there must be holy rails that you would love to see happen you mean in terms of new collections or uh, yeah, something uh, so, you know boy we'd love to have a copy of oh um yeah i mean i'm sure there is uh there's there's uh new collections that i'm um working with donors on all the time um so we, we in addition to uh playbills and books uh we also collect um the archives really of new york theater and most of those come to us from individuals who are sort of either moving apartments or they just want to get the stuff out of their house or their office, um, or in some cases they've died and their family is uh, giving yeah. material. Right. Um, right. I can appreciate that. Um, have contributions lessened since the uh, advent of eBay? Because a lot of people figure, well, why give it to the library? Maybe I can sell it and make a lot of money. Not so much. Um, there's a lot of the material isn't particularly um, financially valuable. Uh, uh-huh. You know, we, we don't collect, um, you know, souvenir mugs or cast gifts for the most part. I mean, you know, we have some cast gifts, but we that, the sort of things that you see on eBay are not the sorts of things that our researchers are usually um, as interested in looking at. And also, you know, people want their want to preserve their legacy, and so they um, they and, and they understand that the library will keep the stuff safe and make it available to the public um, for forever, theoretically. Okay, now the Harold Prince exhibit. Were you actually the one who said, this is what we'll show in this, uh, uh, these are the things we're going to give, or did somebody else make that decision? And was it made in conjunction with other people? Was it a panel? What? So, so I was the curator, which uh, meant that I had, uh, you know, I, I, I had to, I, I had the, the privilege of making uh, the decisions of what was selected and how to, how the exhibit was put together. I, I had a great team that I was working with, um, both uh, the staff of the theater division staff around the library. We have a great uh, exhibitions team at the library. Um, uh, Caitlin Whittington was the, the graphic designer and the exhibition designer. So she and I worked together to figure out how to make, um, how to visually represent uh, the, the show. And uh, and then there were volunteers, uh, some of whom had worked with uh, Harold Prince. So uh, Mana Allen, uh, who was in the oh, original. Yeah, yeah, Merrily, yeah. Merrily, yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah a really uh, dedicated volunteer on the project. And it was, I mean, you know, in in addition to helping with things like lining up photographs to script pages and that sort of thing, uh, you know, the, the, the work that was really important to, to 
but in some ways, uh, you know, lot, you know, it's the, the work that a lot of volunteers would do. I also, uh, really depended on her to talk through what it, uh, was like to be in a Harold Prince show and her, her memory that goes back generations of working in the, in the kind of Prince orbit. Oh yeah. Her father was, um, uh, involved in theater too, as I recall. That's right. And her grandparents too, I believe. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, for those who didn't see the, um, the exhibition, I have to say one of the things that really interested me had to do with Merrily, and that was the fact that um, musical husbands, the musical within the musical, the musical that Frank and Charlie wrote that was their first hit, mm-hmm. was originally called Musical Husbands, colon, the Barbara Hutton story, because <laughs> yeah. Barbara Hutton had, I think, eight husbands. And um, so that and then as time went on, they dropped that uh, concept. But that was really quite fascinating. OK, if you had a little more space. If there was just a little more, maybe the size of a bathroom, what else would we have seen that uh, that you had to say, mm, we just don't have room for that. I wish we could put that out, but we just don't have room for it. Oh, in the Harold Prince exhibit? Yeah. yeah. Um, we Well, we did very little with West Side Story because we had just done an exhibition on Jerome Robbins and before uh-huh. an exhibition on uh, Leonard Bernstein. So we sort of felt like, you know, we'd kind of covered West Side Story over the last, uh, uh-huh. last uh-huh. exhibitions. But nonetheless, it was sort of sad to not uh, feature West Side Story quite as much. Um, on the 20th century, we didn't have a lot for uh, the, uh, for whatever reason that, that show, we, we didn't have as much in the archive. Uh, Hal didn't have as much in his own papers and uh, Ruth Mitchell, who we drew, who I drew a lot of material from, didn't have much there either. So uh, I would have loved to have expanded that section a bit. Um, we, you know, post 19, so the collection, uh, Hal Prince's collection came to us in the eighties. And so all of the work that he did in the nineties, we had to borrow, uh, ah. material for. So, uh, so we borrowed set elements from Phantom of the Opera and Jason Robert Brown lent us a, a little bit of paperwork from his own collection from Prade. Uh, but it would be great in the future, uh, to really fill, fill out the rest of, uh, Hal's career and be able to exhibit some of that material too. Okay. Um, oh, go ahead, Michael. Oh no! Just am I not correct that that he was still alive for the the, the first, at least the first part of the planning of your your yeah. exhibit? So, yeah. So therefore, I must ask if you know if there were any memorable things that 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 you recall him saying in regard to it. Yeah. So he. Um, so if you saw the exhibition, there was an office. We tried to yes. kind of recreate his office in the first um, the one of the first rooms. And I really wanted to have a phone that would ring on the desk and then uh, and use that uh, when and if you picked up the phone, you would hear the story of how West Side Story came to be written with a phone call from uh, you know, Sondheim talking to Prince about the mm-hmm. two that they were mm-hmm. working on yeah. that you know, they were both wow. in trouble. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and he thought the idea was, as he uh, put it in his characteristic way, uh, way swell and, um, you know, very theatrical. Uh, but I had wanted to see if he would be willing to record uh, that conversation or kind of recreate that conversation mm-hmm. uh, with Sondheim. And he mm-hmm. was in the process, I think, at that point of working on, or, you know, the, he wasn't necessarily working on it, but the um, the Verdon Fosse film uh, was coming out. And I think he uh, was saying, you know, you, you see these shows where you, you're represented, uh, and it's, it sort of looks like you, but isn't really you. So <laughs> I, I kind of thought it was fun to hear him kind of talking about, uh, you know, whether, just realizing that he's now part of theater history and and the way that when you see yourself recreated as part of theater history, it can be a, an interesting experience. So obviously over the years, you've rubbed elbows or at least talked with a lot of people who were your heroes while growing up. 
Yeah, that's right. No, yeah, it's been it's been that's one of the really exciting things about the job that, you know, people whose work I've listened to a thousand times or who I, you know, memorized the cast list where I, in, <laughs> uh, yeah, the Hal Prince ate a, a a sandwich in my office at one point while he was being uh-huh. for, for uh, Lonnie Price's uh, documentary, which. Uh, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. You know, it was one of those strange, is this really happening moments. <laughs> in fact, in the uh, Ted Chapin book about Follies, um, he tells us um, what Hal Prince had for lunch, um, that he usually ordered soup. He doesn't tell us what kind of soup. Can you tell us what kind of soup? No, that's not a real question. I'm only kidding. <laughs> uh, who, who, um, who else have you met that you say, wow, this is really a thrill? I never thought I'd be in the same room and talking to. Oh, uh, yeah, so many. Um I mean, one of the really thrilling moments in the um, the Hal Prince exhibition was in the the we had the opening night party, uh, kind of the reception where we you know right before the show opened to the public, and uh, the the evening was kind of winding down, and I was walking through the gallery just to kind of say good night to people, and Jason Robert Brown and Carolee Carmelo and Georgia Stitt were all standing in front of the fr- the parade uh, section. And uh, I asked um, if I asked Jason, who you know, I, I'd written my dissertation on parades, so I've spent right. yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, of thinking yeah. about sure. the show. Uh, we we had in in the exhibition at the very end, there was a, a little um, keyboard, you know, piano keyboard um, that we hoped people would use to play uh, play things from Hal Prince's show. We had, we had a kind of a music book, and so I asked Jason if he would be willing to to play something from um, from his work or, or from uh, Hal Prince's show. And he he wasn't initially that uh, interested in doing it, but then you know, I, I saw Carolee Carmelo and I said, "Would you be interested in in singing something?" And she grabbed Jason and pulled him over to the piano, and they uh, together sang "All the Wasted Time" from the end of the show, which and, and they just start you know playing as people did throughout the evening. Um, but uh, as the song goes on, more and more people that were still in the gallery realized that it was Jason Robert Brown and Carolee Carmelo singing the song, and eventually everybody was gathered around the piano listening to them sing. There's a video I, I posted of that on YouTube with with their permission. It was just a great moment. And I, when you started telling that story, I was hoping that would be the song because that's uh, such a brilliant idea for a song. Because when you look in the playbill and you see there's going to be a song called All the Wasted Time, <laughs> you figure it's going to be about the fact that he's been in prison all that time. And yeah. it's more than that, isn't it? It has yeah. to do with the fact mm-hmm. that they had time as a couple and they didn't use it correctly. And they wish they could have that time back because now they know how much they really love each other. A really brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. Today's episode of This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by ExpressVPN. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. ExpressVPN lets you change your online location so that you can control where you want sites to think you're located. Like last week, I watched Star Trek Discovery on UK Netflix. Can't get that here in the US. So you load up ExpressVPN, connect to the UK, and start Netflix, and there it is. Choose from almost 100 different countries. This works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, anything. So why choose ExpressVPN over other VPNs? You can stream in HD with no problem, no buffering, no lag. It's compatible with all your devices, phones, laptops, media consoles, smart TVs, everything. Not only does it let you change your location, it also encrypts your data and lets you surf the web safely and anonymously. Go to expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash broadwayradio. We'd like to thank ExpressVPN for continuing to support Broadway Radio. 
So, uh, are you familiar with the Google Zeitgeist? Um, no, tell me it, more about it. Yeah. Uh, Google's, uh, Google publishes uh, at the end of every year, um, and actually in real time as well, uh, things that are trends, Google trends, and uh, what's being searched on Google at this, you know, at this oh, moment okay. and in this period of time. So, I was wondering if the if if the if uh, in the New York Public Library, if you knew what were the hot trends of people coming in to see certain things. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago when it was the Follies anniversary, did Follies get a spike or anything oh, like yeah. that? Is there is there any way to enumerate that? Um, yeah, I mean, we do. So, so libraries in general and your public library in you know, in particular are, are very. Um, you know, we're very careful to preserve u- users' privacy, so I can't really talk about anything in particular. But yeah, oh, you, sure. you yeah, can yeah. really get a sense of of when um, of when a show is uh, likely to be revived. Uh, when you get a lot of people, and particularly recognizable names, watching a, a show in Toft, uh, we we have a hunch that there's a revival that's about to be announced. <laughs> yeah, I was I was at the uh, collection um, several years ago. I, I, I don't even remember why I was there. And uh, Andy Blankenbuehler uh, was was there, and I started thinking, "Hmm, hmm. what could he? <laughs> <laughs> what could yeah. he be here for?" Yeah. You know, sure. yeah, yeah, probably more than just a fan. You know, <laughs> yeah. saying one of these days I got to go watch. Right, yeah, that's a good point. I, I was surprised that uh, I was surprised that you had mentioned that Carousel, the revival of Lincoln Center, was the most popular. It was a big favorite of mine, but uh, but Peter has a famous question that he asks everybody: if you could go back and and see uh, uh, one show, what would it be? And it, it, Peter, is it correct that Follies has always been one of the Follies top? is for those who haven't seen Follies, and frankly, for those who did too uh, many times. Follies is the number one answer. Number two is Merman and Gypsy. Three is uh, uh, Streisand and Funny Girl. Four is Showboat. Five is Brigadoon, which always surprises me. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think that that would rank so high, but it does. West Side Story is six. Um, I do. By the way, these are fluid statistics. I have yeah. to admit. I mean, I I, I don't Anecdotal. really keep a careful yeah. record. Yeah, I don't keep a careful record of it. But that's what it seems to be. You know, Lady in the Dark shows up a lot too. Um, yeah. So yeah. so the question becomes, what's yours? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all of those are are shows that I would love to see. I think when I, I I believe I may have given you this answer before in a different interview, and I, I think it remains the same, which is the the eighteen sixty six opening of the Black Crook. I would love to just exactly what they did. Um, I've done a lot of writing about it, and it uh, I don't know. It's interesting. People always talk about how the book wasn't, you know, Charles Barris's script wasn't really kept, but I see no evidence of that. That we have prompt books that have basically the same text that he deposited in the um, library's copyright office, the uh, Library of Congress's copyright office in 63. Mm. So I, I, I think they kept the text basically the same, and then they just added more and more stuff to it. Uh, it's not a long play. I mean, if you, so I, I think that even with all the, the songs and dances, and dances yeah. stuck in there, it could still have been, you know, you could still have preserved most of the text. Uh, given that you uh, did your dissertation on Parade, did you see Parade live? Yeah, I didn't see the Broadway version, uh, the Lincoln Center production. I've seen a bunch of show, uh, productions that, since then. I, g- I got to see the, the London um, premiere mm. uh, a few years later. I, I saw the the um, Philharmonic uh, production with Jeremy Jordan. Um, trying to think what other ones. Yeah, I, I've seen it a bunch of times, but yeah, I, I haven't seen the, the original. I have watched the the Toft video, uh, which is which is great. I, I I knew Jason before Parade, uh, and and I always thought to myself. 
wow, that was that was some leap of faith they took to put somebody so young into that, but I couldn't imagine it without Jason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he'd, he'd been working with Daisy uh, Prince on yeah. um, Monster in Your World, and I, I, you know, he, he, he's narrated how that, that happened a bunch of different yeah. times. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, he, I think he's just so, so talented that it, you know, and obviously his, his, the song that uh, the um, uh, Old Red Hills uh, that he played, yeah. made such an impression uh, that I think they realized fairly quickly that this was the right person for the, for the job. Okay, but um, there are a lot of shows you could have written about Fyodor's dissertation. What made you say it's got to be Parade? Hmm. Yeah, it, because I needed it to be something that I could still, I where I, I could still contact the authors. Um, where uh-huh. there, uh, it where I felt like there was enough uh, material out there that I could uh, get the permission to do it. So I, I did my dissertation in uh, Lexington, at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, and I had only been to New York maybe three times prior to uh, working on my dissertation. So it, I wasn't particularly well connected in the, uh, the theater community at that time. I had um, kind of come to know Jason virtually through, um, you know, listservs and message boards and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was able to get uh, a hold of him. Um, I knew I'd written to Alfred Yuri before and so was able to, to reach him. And so it was partly convenience and also partly just, I really, really loved the show. And so it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a show that I, I felt like I could spend a couple of years thinking about. And then it was a show also that just for access purposes, I w- it, it made it logistically possible. I imagine that um, some of the dissertation dealt with the fact that uh, what was really uh, historically accurate and uh, where there were leaps of faith and poetic license. That's right. Now, the dissertation was uh, used prayed as a case study, case study. So it was really about creating electronic editions of oh. the very kind of multimodal uh, nature of musical theater. So, you know, when you're teaching musical theater, for instance, it's always difficult to figure out what to, what to assign. Do you, do you assign the film version, which is always very different? Do you assign the text, but then you're missing a lot of the the ways that the story are told. And even if you have students, so my dissertation linked the the music together and tried to show the different versions of the text and again, to try to explore the nature, nature of authorship in something as collaborative as, as musical theater is. Um, but yeah, so, but then the last chapter and indeed the, uh, the edition that I created as the kind of meat of the dis- dissertation did look um, at prey very uh, intensely and, and looked at the things that were different from the, at least the, the historical record and the um, the show, although they, they stuck pretty close. Did they? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. That's that, nice I, to hear. Yeah, I drove I, so because I was in Lexington, it was a five or six hour drive to get down to Marietta. So I went uh-huh. down there and spent some time um, just uh, talking to people, looking at the the archives there, um, visiting Mary Fagan's grave, that kind of thing. Wow. Um, was there any, obviously I can't imagine there was anybody who was still alive, but, uh, did you talk to anybody who was like the son or daughter of somebody who was still alive, um, who, uh, remembered the case? Um, there were a few people, the, so there was a book that had just come out and I can't think of the name off the top of my head, uh, about the Leo Frank case. It had come out like the year before I was down there. And so, people had started to, and, and that book really did kind of, they, it named the people that were part of the, the, the lunch party. And so the, ten, I don't know, the, there was a little bit of feeling of like, is this going to be our new, uh, is this going to be our life now that people are going to come and. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, the, you know, it was, it was coincidence really. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know the, 
the book was going to come out. So, um, and I was really interested in the musical more than the. Um, the sure, sure, sure. At Wagner College, is this an undergraduate or graduate course? Uh, it's an undergraduate. It's okay. Um, and do you find the kids are interested in musical history? Um, I, I have heard that a lot of young people are, aren't really interested in musicals that didn't happen, that happened uh, only in their lifetime. That's what they're interested in. Um, do you find that there are people who um, really feel that uh, musical theater history of way back when is worth hearing about? Yeah, these students are are excited to to fill in the the story of, of the time before what they know. And so uh, I've taught different versions of it. And I think what's interesting is when the class focuses on the pre, even the pre-showboat period, um, the students are, the, the, those shows are what the students always write about in their evaluations uh, that they really enjoyed, um, you know, and learning about and, and felt like they wouldn't have had the opportunity to to learn about the Cohen shows or uh, Floridora or, you know, mm-hmm. or Black Crook for that matter. Um, it's it's tricky, of course, because there's there's so many years to cover and so many shows that you feel like someone, you know, if, if you're teaching musical theater history, the students should have at least been exposed to so many of the the great titles. Um, so it's it's always packing a lot of stuff in, but that's you know that's the nature of curation, I suppose. Doug, I'm I'm, I'm not sure if we've discussed, but I, I'm a Wagner alumnus, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. And do you, uh, maybe we, I was thinking maybe we could talk a little bit about the Wagner connection to Rent, because I, I think that that's not a, something that a lot of people know about. And uh, I don't think that the, the college really necessarily pushes it that much. Um, I have an article here about it, or unless you'd like to talk about it. No, go ahead. Oh, well, uh, this article is from... Um, 2013. I'll just read the beginning of it. Uh, 20 years after Wagner College awarded Jonathan Larson the 1993 Stanley Drama Award for an early version of his groundbreaking rock opera, Wagner College Theater staged Rent for the first time in February and March 2013. Um, The idea for Rent, uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. a modern adaptation of Puccini's opera La Boheme had been conceived in 1989, but by 1991, Larson was still waiting tables at a Soho diner to pay the rent on a fifth floor cold water Hudson Square walk up he shared with two roommates and a couple of cats. Fortunately for him and for us, meaning Wagner, that's when Larson somehow heard about the Stanley Drama Award competition administered by the Wagner College Theater. He sent his script along with a demo tape to Billy to Bill Bly, director of the Stanley, uh, and waited, and and he won the award. So you know, it, th- I think there was kind of a key um, thing, uh, it, it, both financially for jo- Jonathan, you know, because he was still s- just scraping by at that point, and also I'm sure in terms of encouragement, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, br- bringing the you know continuing to work on the piece and 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 refining it. Yeah. So I, uh, before I came to uh, New York, when I was still working at the University of Maryland, I spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress. And one of the the things that I did there was to um, migrate Jonathan Larson's floppy disks uh, uh-huh. from the, their original format over to the, the servers that they had, really just as a, a researcher and a volunteer. They, you know, they, the staff knew me. And so they, we put together a plan to make it happen safely. But, um, and so what was interesting then is I was able to look back through his Microsoft Word 5.1 uh, document, 
and see uh, not only the the versions that were saved sort of on the surface of those files, but uh, Microsoft Word 5.1 had a feature called Fast Save, which meant that the yeah. the changes weren't um, didn't overwrite uh, what. The, the you know what was the previous version, but instead saved the um the changes sort of at the the bottom, and there was code that explained how to collate them into the the base text, and so as a result, you could see each file had about fourteen different versions of rent on it, uh, and you know you have timestamps and all that. He had his um his schedule for the Moon Dance Diner on a file, so you really could see how the show came to be, and and among the things that are on his files are you know these applications for just about every uh theater fellowship and award and NEA grant. And so, yeah, I'm sure that the, the Wagner uh, award was, was really meaningful given how many times he had been told no. We, uh, we've spoken to Jennifer Ashley Tepper a number of times uh, here on Broadway Radio. She's a good friend of ours. And well, we talked recently about her uh, research down at the Library of Congress with the Jonathan uh, Larson project. Uh, I, I was wondering, uh, uh, m- m- most of our listeners are not in New York. Uh, some of them in Europe, Asia, Australia, uh, things like that. Are there uh, uh, collections that they should visit uh, outside uh, of New York, either within the United States or around the world, that are uh, theater collections that you admire? Yeah. So the uh, the Victoria and Albert Museum has a fantastic theater collection um, that uh, – uh, really deserves a lot of support and um, and it's it's really one of the treasures of uh, theater collecting certainly in the UK and, and honestly in in the world. Um, the Munich Theater Museum is another fantastic um, uh, little museum dedicated to the history of theater in Germany. Uh, the in the United States, the uh, Harry K. Ransom Center at the University of Texas is a fantastic archive. Um, it really. Has, yeah, a lot of um, American playwrights uh, end up down there. Um, so it's it's really a first-class uh, theater archive. Uh, the, of course, the Library of Congress, the Harvard Theater Collection is another uh, really great collection with a dedicated curator. Um, the uh, Actually, uh, Emory University has uh, an enormous amount of theater material, too. They have Alfred Urey's papers. Um, they, uh, have collected a lot of African-American playwrights. Uh, and so it's really, it's another place, uh, Emory's, uh, is another place that might not immediately spring to mind when you think of theater history or theater archives, but it, it is definitely a place that researchers should look. Wow. Uh, whenever I go to London, I stay at a hotel right across from the Victoria and Albert because they have a great buffet breakfast. Yeah. I never knew that that, <laughs> that, that, that that museum held so much. The next time I go, should that unlikely event occur, who knows what's going to happen, um, I'm going to go there. But this brings up another point, too. We have heard so many dates when Broadway was going to reopen. Uh, it's going to be this one. It's going to be that one, May 30th, so on and so forth. Um, do you have any sense of a target date when you people are going to reopen? Um, I, I, I think that it'll be soon. Um, I, I think that I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, there will be some, some form of reopening. Um, yeah, in, in I, I, I would guess in the, in the very, very near future. Okay. And, uh, you imagine that there'll be uh, a limit of how many people can come in? I mean, we'll be following the, the COVID protocols for safety and all of that. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. I think there, there has been an announcement in the, um, in the times, I believe that, uh, we are, hoping to have some outdoor uh, um, 
uh, reading rooms and uh, and service uh, starting in May. So at least there will be some outdoor uh, access to the library, if, if nothing mm-hmm. else. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, just between us, nobody else will know. <laughs> right. Uh, you you have keys to the library. So, uh, <laughs> so you, you ever like go in and like, you know, watch stuff because you you can do it at like 2 a.m.? You know, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, uh, we are. Um, uh, it's a fairly tightly controlled collection, even for this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you were mentioning that hopefully uh, we're going to hear some positive news about a reopening. As I mentioned, a lot of our uh, listeners are out of town, but do come to New York to visit Broadway and various uh, shows and exhibits and things like that. Um, uh, are uh, out of towners able? Uh, able to do this do they need to schedule appointments and uh or do they need to apply for a new york public library card or can they can their ames iowa library card be used in conjunction or how does this work so so anyone can use the collection on site um to check out books uh oh sure yeah you you have to have there's different levels of access yeah but um, but yeah, any you, you can be anyone from anywhere in the world and have full access to the theater on film and tape collection to the theater archives. We're really one of the most. I mean, you know, and I've worked in a lot of archives as a researcher. We're one of the most open archives that I I know of. Um, we don't uh really vet you to make sure that you're part. You know, that you're from a an acceptable institution or that you have acceptable scholarly credentials. Anyone can um can walk in and and very quickly. Be, hold a uh, a Beethoven manuscript in their hands, you know, in the in the reading room. So, mm-hmm. it, or or you know, a, the uh, the original drafts of the lyrics for a chorus line from Ed Cleveland. So, mm-hmm. there there it is a it is a very open and very I, I hope welcoming um, welcoming space. Uh, now, I come from a small town in Massachusetts called Arlington, uh, eight miles west of Boston, and our library, the Robbins Library, had a terrific collection when I was growing up of theater materials, books, records, um, just amazing considering uh, the town isn't that big, uh, probably about 50,000 people at that point in time. Uh, when you were in St. Louis, was it really St. Louis, by the way, or was it a suburb? It was actually Florissant, which is in North County. Okay, so did your library have a nice uh, array of books and records uh, that uh, certainly spurred you to uh, have greater interest in this art form? Yeah, like so many, I I have fond memories of uh, spending Saturday mornings flipping through the the record till and the uh, and looking at the the cast albums to check out. We could only check out four LPs at a time, um, mm-hmm. so it was uh, you know always a, a bit of curation there, even of which which four did I want to be able to listen to on the record player this week? And, you know, there were cassettes. <laughs> so uh, therefore anything that said original cast and album you were interested in. Yeah. One thing that I loved about um, the fluorescent library is unlike a lot of libraries, they didn't interfile um, cast recordings and soundtracks. Uh, so I could just look at the, uh, at the cast recordings and figure out which one I wanted to listen to next. It was often driven by what was either going to be performed by local high schools or what the Nini had announced for their season. But I wanted to get oh, a right. show was before I um before I went to go see it. So, in fact, was the Muni the first place you ever saw a musical theater piece? Um, yes, although not the St. Louis Muni. So, oh, like, how funny! <laughs> my uh, my <laughs> my grandparents uh, lived in Springfield, Illinois, and they have a, uh, a Muni there as well, much much smaller one. And like so many, I, I guess, of my generation, uh, Peter Pan was the first. The you know the um, famous. Uh, 
Robbins and Carolyn Lay and all that. I, I, I had no idea that Springfield, Illinois had this. Does, do they still? They, as, well, as far as I know, they do. I haven't been there in some years. But sure. Wow. I had no idea. Wow, yeah, that's amazing. Free shows. They tend, they, um, at least when I, uh, when I was last there, they tended to do things uh, a little bit of a little bit newer uh, vintage than the St. Louis, the St. Louis Mini, at least until, well, you know, throughout sure. the year, sure. a, a larger. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, let me uh, ask you one final question before we let you go for the morning. Um, as we talked about, technology has progressed so much just in the last 10 years. Uh, are you, uh, with with newer productions uh, being out there, are you overwhelmed with the amount of digital information that is available for newer things? And is, does it make your job harder to... Uh, get the important data rather than wading through, you know, tons of useless data or re- repetitious data? It's a good question. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, I, I work as, as part of a, a, a team in the theater division, and then we're part of the larger team of the library. And, and so we're all trying to, I think, and, and the, actually the library community, in fact, is trying to grapple with how do we make sure that we can preserve um, Word files and uh, design files created with a program like Vectorworks or even Photoshop um, with the same certainty of permanency. Uh, you know that, that that's always a bit of a fiction anyway. But like that, that that we can that we can be confident that we are safely preserving a Photoshop file with the same confidence that we can be sure that we're preserving a um, a Boris Aronson sketch or a, uh, mm. a Martha Swope photograph. Um, and so it, it's a challenge, I think. So, and, and we're all in the library community um, across the the globe, really, trying to figure that out. Um, one of the really interesting things, though, is that the this um, the amount of data, sort of like the, those Freeman Abel's photographs that began our our conversations, allows us to do things that we wouldn't have been able to do with less information. So, you'd asked me earlier one of the some of the projects that I've worked on in the past, and one of the ones that I was uh, excited about, and one that I didn't mention was a, uh, a project to work, uh, initially, the idea was to work with lighting designs, um, because we have um, the lighting designs of Theron Musser and uh, Jules Fisher and um, Thomas Skelton, so many of the, the great lighting designers of the last 100 years. And those collections aren't referenced, I don't think, as, as frequently as um, maybe they... I think they might be more useful to people than, than folks realize. And one of the difficulties, of course, is they're very technical. So you can you can see uh, what a costume design is simply by looking at the the sketch, or and you know the fabric swatches give you a sense of the texture. Or a um, a scenic design, you can fairly quickly see what the set looks like, particularly in the, um, the sort of color renderings. Uh, but a, a lighting design is, a, is truly a technical document and it's connected with things like uh, lighting cues and hanging plots and all that sort of thing. So I, I got a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to create uh, what I called an emulator for lighting design. So, you know, we people play um, old computer games like Pac-Man or whatever on uh, uh-huh. programs that make new computers pretend to be old computers. And so I wondered if it would be possible to try to create an emulator for the stage so ah. uh, you would essentially create the framework of something and then you import the lighting plot, you import the cues, and then uh, you import even the scenic design if you want to and see, and begin to reconstruct the show from the data that we have in the, in the archive. 
um, we initially did uh, a scene from Sunday in the Park with George. We had Richard uh, Nelson's uh, lighting design paperwork. Um, then we did the uh, the Lincoln Center production of The Heiress because Beverly Emmons and um, John Lee Beatty were helping us with the project. And then for the final that uh, we did a hackathon where we brought in lighting designers and um, uh, developers who work in virtual reality to try to recreate uh, some of this uh, lighting for, I think we really just got through the final, we did the final scene of Sweeney Todd uh, with Ken Bellington kind of advising on that. And I, it was a really interesting project. I, I think that uh, much like um, hybrid classes or, or online classes, even five years ago, the technology was just almost there, but not quite there yet. Um, so I think that as uh, virtual reality headsets get um, cheaper and as uh, 3D design becomes something that people feel more comfortable with, and also, frankly, as more and more of the... Uh, theater archives are what we call born digital. That is, they were never meant to be, they were never first committed to paper. They were created for mm. computer. We will have a lot of that data to import into software, like what we tried to, well, what we did create, and then be able to reconstruct a show uh, in some form with a fair degree of fidelity to what the, at least what the designers intended. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, uh, Doug Reside. Mm is the digital curator at the New York Public Library. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm the theater curator now. I was the digital curator originally, but I'm the theater curator at this point. Ah, the New York a Times is respect. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> a little more respect. <laughs> is it theater with an E-R or R-E? Um, we use the R-E uh, spelling uh, for the lot. I know, the, the division uses the R-E spelling. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because doesn't Lincoln Center Theater use E-R? Mm-hmm. I think they do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Doug Reside is the theater curator for the New York Public Library. We would really like to thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. It's been very, very interesting. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we have a beautiful uh, Sunday here in New York, Peter. Are you uh, getting out much? Well, I did go downtown to the Daryl Roth Theater uh, on 15th Street to see Blindness, um, this new, shall we say play? Shall we say experience? I don't know. Mm -hmm. it's extraordinarily effective, um, but I'm not sure it's the right show to be playing now because it deals with the pandemic. Um, it's it, everybody goes blind except for uh, Juliet Stevenson. Um, you know, you always hear in the King of the, of the Blind, the one-eyed man is king. Well, here, um, a two-eyed uh, person is uh, queen. It's um, now the thing is, when you go into the theater, it has been. It, it is not doesn't look like a theater. Um, think of essentially a, a function room in a hotel where you go to a banquet, though, of course, there aren't nearly as many seats uh, because we're all socially distanced from each other. But um, they're, they're banks of two. Sometimes you're sitting next to the person. Sometimes you're sitting face to the person, depending on where they put you. So, um, so most of it is in the complete darkness because, of course, we're dealing with blindness, and um, it is really completely dark. And, of course, because we're still in this pandemic, there are no actors. What you have are headphones, and you listen to Juliet Stevenson tell the story of what's going on here. But 
I will tell you, I'm, I'm, this is going to sound like a strange thing to uh, compare to, but back in 1995, the musical Big was going to open, and so was Sunset Boulevard. And they said, um, you know, Sunset Boulevard's obviously going to win. So let's wait a year. And that way we can win next year's Tony. Well, the next year was the year mm-hmm. of rent and it didn't happen. Um, if they had opened in 95, I think they would have won the Tony. Because I said, oh, this fresh original, um, an American show. It's, it's just so carefree and light and lovely as opposed to Sunset Boulevard. Why do I bring this up? Well, if indeed you have a show with spectacular sound and you want to win a best sound award, don't open this year because it wait till next year, because I am telling you <laughs> the sound in this thing is so extraordinary um, because the headphones don't just have stereo. I mean, I don't know what word to use, but it sounds you can really feel that there are sounds that come from here, there and everywhere. You swear the people are walking right in front of you. You swear the people are walking behind you. You swear the people are on each side of you. Sounds come from, it, it really um, it, it's almost like um, a, a ping pong ball going around here, there and everywhere the way the sound comes from. It's an amazing experience to find out what they can do with sound. Amazing. So that part of it is really uh, very, very, very effective. Um, but the word quarantine shows up more than once. And I would think this is a word from which we'd all like to escape. So um, so this play, of course, makes you glad you're not blind, but it also um, makes you glad you're not deaf because you can really appreciate the sound that goes on here. So um, there's a very, very effective um, coup de théâtre at the end of the show. Very effective. Um, but again, um, I don't know about the commercial prospects for this one. You know, it's, it's skillfully done. And it's a show I would like to have seen, so to speak, at a time when we weren't going through all this chaos. I think that that technology might be called binaural recording. Is that what it's it is? Where they actually create like the... the, the um, the model of a head, and they record it. Um, let's see, binaural recording is a method of recording sound that uses two microphones arranged with the intent to create a 3D stereo sound sensation for the listener of actually being in the room with the performance or instruments. And they actually make a head, a model of a head, and they put the microphones where the ears would be. And uh, it sounds like, from what you're describing, that maybe that's what they did. Yeah, um, tremendously effective. Tremendously. Um, what was that? Uh, what was that Broadway show a couple seasons ago with where we wear the headphones? Right. Yeah, oh, the Encounter was it called? Was Something it was like called? that. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was uh, at the Golden or. Um, yeah. Right. Um, I think and, that was the same technology. Maybe. maybe. Yeah. I, I did. You should pardon the expression. See that, um, but um, I think this is far more effective. So who knows how much the technology has come along, um, or what they decided to use that the other show didn't. But um, it's pretty impressive. All right. Okay. So uh, what do you got coming up, uh, Peter? You going to see another Susan Charlotte show tomorrow? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can't remember anything. Um, that's the name of the show. Really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's the name of the show. Tennessee <laughs> Williams. Uh, Bob Dishy um, did it earlier uh, in this season, meaning last July, um, with his wife, Judy Grubar. But but uh, Penny Fuller's coming in to do it. Uh, Penny Fuller, who I did not see in applause because I saw the tryout, and um, uh, Diane McAfee was doing it at that time. <laughs> and um, But I have to say that many people have said to me that Penny Fuller's um, 
performance and applause was the greatest they've ever seen a supporting role in the musical. So she really is something. She's uh, she's wonderful, and she does a wonderful act with the need Gillette too, uh, which is uh, tremendously appealing. So um, between the two of them, um, this is going to be uh, quite an event, I would think. So it's tomorrow at Theater 80 St. Mark's at 2 o'clock. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Of course, it's not the same thing, but but in case our listeners aren't aware, there is a film, uh, a, a TV film or video version of Applause, uh, and so you can't see Penny Fuller in that. Is she in that? Did she do uh, it? Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't she remember did. that. Yeah, uh, it was done in London uh, for oh, yeah. for various oh, yeah. reasons, but it yeah. is uh, Lauren Bacall and Penny Fuller, uh-huh. uh, and then we have Harvey Evans in for Leroy. That I remember. Yeah, yeah, but boy, I mean, it's 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 not a good adaptation, and no, uh, not great for for people who um, often put down applause. Um, this may be one reason why, because um, it, that original production was really phenomenal. I don't know anybody who saw that original production um, who now speaks of it, doesn't speak of it with reverence and awe, but you had to be there. You mm. just did. Um, you know, the original cast album and that London version does not do it well. But anyway, tomorrow at Theatre um, 80 St. Mark's, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's This is Monday, April 19th, um, to be um, sure of that. 646-366-9340 is one way you can make reservations. I'll do that again. 646 646- Three six six nine three four zero, or you can email them at info at foodforthoughtproductions.com and make a reservation. So you can do that as well. So um, that's uh, something we can uh, look forward to tomorrow. Okay. So uh, normally this time of year, uh, well, there is no normally this yeah, this particular year. Uh, we would be talking about Tony Award nominations and things like that, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. it was a very quiet Saturday, except Scott Rudin decided to make a statement to the Washington Post about his Broadway work, which uh, says <laughs> it's it's been a lot of uh, discussion about why he decided to talk to the Washington Post about his Broadway work rather than the New York Times about his Broadway work. But in essence, he has said that he's going to, quote-unquote, step back from his Broadway productions, but he made no mention of his Hollywood productions. So um, That's interesting, too. uh, Talk to... You know, in an email to Peter Marks, a three-paragraph statement that said he's going to step back and let others... uh, run his um, productions Book of Mormon and uh, Kill a Mockingbird and the upcoming Music Man. Uh, and he's going to do some uh, self-work uh, about um, addressing some of the issues that have been coming up. But uh, Michael and Peter, I'd like to get your take on it. Michael, Michael uh, what do you think? Well, um, yes, people are, of course, the question now is exactly what does stepping back or stepping down mean? Uh, I mean, I suppose it would be uh, tremendously beneficial if he only is somehow removed from uh, uh, the situation of working in an office with underlings, because that seems to be the the major, major issue. Um, but I don't know if that will be enough for people, um, you know, or, or if they will d- demand something further and if there, you know, will d- be further attempts for a boycott. Is today uh, supposed to be the day of that march, that uh, that protest march that's happening? I don't know. If uh, I have. 
I haven't heard about a protest march. So yeah, I see, yeah, I mean, people are. It hasn't been that well publicized, but I think it was um, happening within the community of, uh, and I'm not sure how they're getting the word out, but uh, some people are thinking it might be a bust because uh, obviously, if if you guys don't know about it, mm, I uh, don't. Yeah, um, so we'll see what happens with that. I I, I had something, just uh, two things from personal experience that I, I thought I would mention because uh, this happened a while ago and it kind of, they were red flags for me, uh, two different things. Um, I think that over the years that, that, uh, that Mr. Rudin used different, uh, different publicity houses for his shows, but, but it seems to me that in recent years he has settled on one, which I w- actually won't name. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. Um, not, he settled on this one, uh, this one publicity firm, but also it seems that um, there is one particular person at this firm who is not by any means a senior person who has become the contact for all Scott Rudin shows, and I'm not sure if that's um, if he ex- if he uh, just really likes this person so much, or or maybe um, she uh, somehow uh, is uh, has not been a target uh, of him, and that's why she was the one who wound up in that position. But this affected me personally a few years ago because I wanted to arrange to uh, speak with Celia Keenan-Bolger for the drama desk. And uh, and so I had to go through this person because it, uh, this person is the PR person for To Kill a Mockingbird. And to put it mildly, um, I think there was an initial response and then complete, complete non-communication after that as if this person was ghosting me and so it was becoming extremely frustrating fortunately celia wound up hiring her own personal publicist uh which was very smart of her because uh maybe she realized that this this other woman wasn't going to do anything and uh and that was the year you know when when the season when Celia would be up for the Tonys, which she then actually did wind up winning the Tony. So I think that all, that all worked out very well because I went through that, the person that she hired at, who was very helpful. And we, we did in fact get her to, to speak uh, to the, to the, the drama desk with me interviewing her. So that was one thing. And then another thing that happened that I have never seen anything like this in my life. And at the time I was, kind of aghast. I don't think it got a lot of um, reaction from the community, but there were uh, one or two people who had been working for uh, one of the PR firms that that's Scott Rudin was dealing with. And those two people left to start their own PR office. Now, almost every PR person that I know of started in another office. That's sure. just the way that's just sure. the way it works. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. So uh, th- these one or two people left and he sent out an email, I believe it was, castigating them in the most uh, the most horrific terms you can imagine i i I think that uh the phrase that was used was uh petulant children or something very similar to that and i have never seen a public uh reaction like that and of course the interesting thing is it wasn't from it wasn't from the pr firm that they left it was from the this producer uh so i 
when I saw that, I thought this is very extraordinary. And it was an indication of maybe severe problems uh, on that end. Well, I mean, uh, Scott Rudin's partner, uh, you know, ran a PR firm, John that's Barlow. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, could you imagine if Barlow Hartman, Hartman Barlow, what was yeah, it? Right. Barlow, Barlow Hartman. Hartman. Yes. Yeah, Barlow Hartman. Right. Could you imagine if Barlow Hartman was still an ongoing presence today? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I mean, I, I mean, and uh, I, I mean, the, the, the transition of, of uh, you know, all Scott's announcements, I mean, he'd, he, uh, the DKC O&M people have uh, have defended him up, down, and sideways forever. Uh, and, and we've all known about Scott Rudin's abuse for many, many years. When you say they've defended him, I don't doubt you, but, but how do you mean? You mean well, I mean, release? Well, I mean, it, if they've taken on his shows, they're, they're in bed with him. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and... Sure. and and we've all gone through the crap. We all went through the crap with Hello Dolly for uh, for getting press review th- seats, and and all, all of Scott Rudin's shows has always been it, it's always been holier than thou, right? Uh, and and that's it's all run from DK and C and O and M, and and the, these people have bought into it, and we have other people in the Broadway community who are defending Scott Rudin. Indeed. Um, my question becomes, um, since we have the slings and arrows of outrageous root, and the question becomes, um, given that he's stepping away from Broadway, does that mean he treats his Hollywood employees very nicely? Um, is there <laughs> a difference? I mean, it's so bizarre to me. Well, yeah. The real question, what's, what's going to happen with the music man? Um, does this mean that um, his associate producers will take over? Is it now open for option for somebody else to take over? No, it, it seems like uh, he's having his top lieutenant takeover music man uh and uh uh was it deadline 9411 or i i forget the uh i forget the website uh do you guys know what i'm talking about i know about deadline but go ahead tell us what it said uh let me find the correct uh, all right the, okay, the correct story idea. hold on that's one second idea. so it, it was they were saying that uh that Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman told right. Uh, I have heard that. That. Mm-hmm. Uh, that told Scott Rudin he's got to do something or else they were out. And but I've only seen that in once in one place. I've not seen it any anywhere else. Yes, so, I have to say that what I've seen is that Sutton Foster had her doubts. I didn't, uh, that in fact said that she Showbiz Four One Roger Friedman Showbiz Four One One. Right, right. Yeah, uh, that, but that's she, the only place that I saw that that Sutton Foster and and uh, Hugh Jackman put their foot down but also uh th- this although these two are not listed on ibdb um when the music man was announced it was announced that two other producers of the music man are david geffen and barry diller now i realize that uh, i don't i don't think either of those are are the usual hands-on kind of producers no mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. the rudin is but uh, but with people like that involved <laughs> you know uh, obviously it's not, i the, the chances that it's just going to go away are less likely and and that they will work something out uh, to make everyone happy. On the other hand, is it possible? Possible. That's all I say. Possible mm-hmm. that um, time, so much time has passed that you Jackman isn't even as interested in doing this uh, as he once was and could find a convenient excuse to bail. It's, I think it's possible. 
Well, it, it's certainly possible, but it seems like he's still interested. Okay, we'll see. I mean, just from what from what yeah, we'll we've see. Heard yeah. you know. and, and that when I say we'll see, that's not a, a confrontational. Yeah. We'll see, as if say you wait and see. Yeah, I yeah. don't mean that. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean that. I mean, uh, I yeah. have no idea. But um, I, you know, people do lose interest in things, and it's not impossible that uh, with a tremendous delay. And certainly, this is a a performer who's in great demand. So uh, I'm certain he has other options here and there, and uh, he might want to take them. Well, I, I mean. <sighs> Uh, Rob uh, Rob Johnson posted a link in in our chat here that was to a Facebook post that was allegedly from Rob Roth, uh, Robbie, the director, uh, of, Beauty and the the director of Beauty and the Beast, uh, that um, basically uh, said that he had written something to Scott Rudin that said that uh, he was in support of Scott Rudin that people are blowing this out of proportion and. and I I would love to see if this was this was verified or not. I mean, I, I don't know. Did you, have you guys heard anything? If this was no, that, but that was the the thing that was reproduced. You know, and, and again, we can't we can't vouch for the veracity of it. But the thing that was re- reproduced was primarily aimed against Karen Olivo. And I think, yeah. I mean, that's something I personally don't want to get into, uh, okay. but, but that, uh, that was the context of it. It was, it, it did, it was also supportive of Scott Rudin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the other thing, you know, for all the talk about um, that, uh, that Rudin has an ego as big as Rhode Island, which may not be a big state, but for an ego, it's pretty big. The fact <laughs> remains, I live in the neighborhood of the Winter Garden, and, you know, I pass by it endlessly. And, you know, there's Hugh Jackman's name as big as the Music Man, and there's Sutton Foster's name as big as the Music Man. But nowhere in the signage do you see the words Scott and Rudin. And I'm a little surprised at that. I would really think that he would want his name up there. So uh, at least where ego is concerned, it doesn't extend to the signage at the Winter Garden Theater. That's all I want to say. Hmm. Well, I, I wonder. I, I don't recall seeing his name on uh, uh, on Book of Mormon or. Uh, yeah, I don't. I just don't think that's something that I he don't does. think he does. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not Cameron McIntosh or Andrew Luck. Yeah, Miller, uh, you know? <laughs> but this is my point. You know, the many yeah. producers really want their name to be as uh, you know pretty large and pretty um, out there. You know, always establish the name. Jay Pierpont yeah. Finch says. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> uh, you know so. All right, so let's move on to our trivia section. Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Sure. Any musical that opens downtown hopes to move uptown. This one did, but after it moved uptown, it eventually moved downtown again, although to a different theater than its first downtown theater. Then it eventually moved uptown again, although to a different theater than its first uptown theater. A hint, one of those theaters doesn't exist anymore. One has a different name, and the two others have been repurposed. What's this musical? Well, it's Man of La Mancha, which opened at the Anta Washington Square Theater, a theater on West 4th Street that now no longer there. It moved uptown to the Martin Beck, now the Al Hirschfeld Theater, and then back down to the Eden on 2nd Avenue, which is now a multiplex cinema, and then up to the Hellinger, which is now, sad to say, a church. So Tony Janicki again, first to get it, followed by J. Aubrey Jones, Brigadoo, Jack Leshner, and Fred Abramowitz. This week's question, a musical has a dance, a famous musical, in fact, has a dance with dance music, no lyrics, but it does have a name that mentions a certain nationality. When the musical was first adapted for TV, 
the dance retained its name and nationality. But when it was next adapted for TV, the nationality was changed. What's the musical and the two names of the dances? All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, in keeping with our mm. original theme today when we uh, spoke to Doug Reeside, tell us yes. what's in the musical moment. Yes, uh, it is a tribute to the aforementioned Jill Hallworth, uh, who Peter mentioned and who is the subject of, of one of uh, Doug's GIF animations that that he mentioned and which will include uh, a link to that. The, the one that was in the article in the New York times recently, um, Miss Hallworth created the role of Ca- Sally Bowles in cabaret. And uh, I'm reading, I'm going to read now from her obituary from January 4th, 2011 in the New York times. Uh, it says for Miss Hallworth, the role would be the high point of her career, just 21 on opening night. And with scant stage experience, she had never before sung a note professionally. The reviews were not overly kind. And one in particular was a damning declaration by Walter Kerr in the New York times. Um, I, I think I'm going to not read it, um, but let's just say it, it is quite damning, quite negative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there, the, um, Obit goes on to say, Harold Prince, who directed the musical, recalled in an interview Tuesday that Miss Hallworth was remarkably steadfast and mature after the drubbing. She played the part for nearly two years and never laid the weight of that on anyone, he said. Quote, we just loved her. Uh, they underestimated her, Mr. Prince said of the critics. Sally Bowles was not supposed to be a professional singer. She wasn't supposed to be so slick that you forgot she was an English girl somewhat off the rails in the Weimar era. When Jill came in and auditioned, we, she, she nailed it right away, walked that line. That's what we wanted, and that's what she delivered. So um, the musical moment is... Uh, Miss Howard singing the title song of Cabaret from the original Broadway cast recording. We're also going to include two uh, video clips, one uh, from two different Tony Awards, one from 1968 and one uh, from 1971. The 1971 was the year that the Tonys uh, recreated, uh, was celebrating 25 years of the Tonys. And so they brought all the original stars back to recreate their their great moments the 1968 one i'm not sure why it would have been 1968 because the show uh originally opened in november 1966 do you know offhand peter why it would have been no not a clue Uh, perhaps it's mislabeled but uh anyway there were two different versions of uh of jill howard uh performing cabaret and uh with two different uh uh two different hair colors, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so you can enjoy that. And, and of course, you know, and between those two and the uh, track from the original Broadway cast album, perhaps you can get an idea of what she was like in the role. Of course, it's not the same, especially in a show like that, not the same as seeing it live and not the same as seeing it in context. Uh, but I really would have loved to have seen her in it. I, I did know her, uh, slightly in her later years, she we actually went to the same gym together for uh, a little while. Hmm. Um, so I, uh, I, 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 but we do 
want to pay tribute to her and please enjoy these these videos and the uh the track and also doug resides animations of uh photos from the original production <laughs> all right so on behalf of michael portantier and peter felicia this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to broadway radios this week on broadway bye-bye bye bye with whom I shared four sordid rooms in Chelsea She wasn't what you'd call a blushing flower As a matter of fact, she rented by the hour The day she died, the neighbors came to snicker Well, that's what comes of too much pills and liquor But when I saw her laid out like a queen she was the happiest corpse I'd ever seen I think of Elsie to this very day I remember how she turned to me And say What good is sitting Alone in your room Come hear the music play Life is a cabaret, old chum Come to the cabaret Put down the knitting, the book and the broom As for me, as for me, I made my money.